Good morning. Welcome to RHC. It's good to be with you on this Lord's Day morning. Last Sunday, we focused on Job's initial response to Bildad's final speech in Job chapter 26. We looked at Job's critique where he hammered his friends for once again failing to comfort him. Uh, we looked at Job's counterclaim where he unleashed a series of declarations concerning the sovereign majesty of God. And we looked at Job's consternation where he freely admitted that, that no one, including himself, would ever be able to fully know the depths of God, the depths of God's sovereign majesty, and that even the most profound declarations concerning who he is uh, would uh, be nothing more than the outskirts of his ways. In the next section, Job reaffirms his innocence and demands justice. He calls for God to unleash wrath on his wicked enemies, and he cautions those who oppress the righteous. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23, the entire passage, basically, is what we're looking at today. And I'm going to have to move fairly quickly because it's a gigantic section. I'm going to give you three W's, three W's. I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we get into the Word. Father, um, we humbly submit ourselves to you and place ourselves under the authority of your word. We pray that you teach us and train us from your word this morning. Help us to understand the demise of the wicked and, um, and, and everything else that's, that's contained in this passage. And we pray that you are exalted and glorified during this time as you sanctify us. We commit ourselves to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at our first W. It is Job's word. And when I say Job's word, I mean his pledge, his promise, his vow. And we see this in verses 1 to 6. Basically, Job charges God with injustice. And then he, he gives his word that he will continue to maintain his honesty and his integrity and his righteousness until the day he dies. Let's pick it up at verses 1 and 2. This is what Job says next as he's basically rebuking Bildad. And Job again took up his discourse and said, here it is, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty, who has made my soul bitter. Stop there. Job's suffering was so intense that it clouded his understanding to the point of him thinking that the Almighty, that God had unjustly removed his right to a fair trial um, where he could literally kind of stand before God in a sense and, and argue his case before the divine bench and then be cleared of all of these false charges against him, be cleared of all the wrongdoing that he was being blamed for or that he mistakenly thought he was being judged for. And uh, this, is, this is a really... Uh, a terrible frame of mind that he's in here. I mean, to charge God with injustice or taking away your right is a pretty serious thing, and we'll talk about that more. I like what R.C. Sproul said. He, he wrote, We may see non-justice in God, which is mercy, but we will never see injustice in God. Now, this is a, a totally true statement. We are never going to see injustice in God because God is perfectly just. At all times, he's perfectly just. There's never a, a, a lapse in his justice. There's never a distortion in it. He's always perfectly just all the time because he himself is perfect. Now, if we see the what we perceive to be the absence of justice in God, we need to understand that this is not injustice. If God withholds something that, that we think that we deserve, like maybe justice from some brutal persecutor, we need to understand that God is not committing injustice. He is acting in wisdom. He is acting in accordance with His plan because God literally knows all things and all outcomes. It could be 
that God is withholding something that we think we deserve, that we think we're entitled to, as, as Job thought this way, it could be that what God is actually doing, especially if we're talking about a persecutor, it could be that God is just mercifully providing time for our persecutor to repent. I mean, if somebody has wronged us and, and, and we think that, that God owes us justice and then we don't get the justice and maybe that person continues to wrong us, it could be that God is, even though it's a difficult situation for us, that God is allowing time for that person to come to their senses and repent. It could be that. It, it could be that God withholds what we think is justice in a scenario or whatever it is that we think we deserve. It could be that he's doing that uh, simply uh, for the fact that he's protecting us from something else. Like that if, if God were to issue justice or give us what we want here in this scenario, that could open up another scenario that becomes far more harmful. So it could be just simply acting in wisdom and protecting us. One thing is absolutely certain. God is using our suffering. He is using our persecution to sanctify and conform us to the image of his son which is an expression of his mercy, that he can take the bad things that happen to us and turn them around for good, for our own sanctification. That's, that's pure mercy, pure mercy. And, you know, we, we need to stop and consider. Job is upset because he thinks that God has stripped him of his right. Like, I have a right to a fair trial. I have a right to argue my case. I have a right to justice. This is Job's mentality, and it's stinking thinking. It's distorted thinking because he's suffering so tremendously. But the question we need to ask is, did God owe Job anything at all? Does he owe Job justice? Does he owe Job a fair trial and a hearing? Does he, does he owe Job any of these things that Job desires? No, he doesn't. He doesn't owe Job or anyone else, anything. Does, does God owe sinners, saved or unsaved, anything at all? No, he does not. We need to understand that every bit of God's dealings with fallen humanity is based on his mercy. We need to understand that, that God owes us nothing. And I would say there is something that he could owe us or, or should owe us and does owe a great many, and that would be wrath. Wrath is our lot. Wrath is our wage. That's what we deserve. That's what is owed to us. That's what we've earned. Nothing but wrath, because that is what we truly deserve, because we are all sinners. We all sin willfully. We've all committed cosmic treason. We all transgress the law of God. Wrath is what we are owed. If God... I mean, it's just, just thinking about it. If God withholds justice, the penalty that is due sinners, he is not committing injustice. He's not. He is being merciful. He is being merciful. Now, to charge, as I said earlier, to charge God with injustice is a serious thing. It is an attack on his holiness. It is an attack on his moral perfections. It is an attack on his very being in person. And then adding to insult, or adding insult to injury, I should say, the battered patriarch Job not only charges God with injustice, but he claims that it's God's injustice that has embittered his soul. The fact that he thinks that God has taken away his, his legal right to argue his case and be cleared of all the charges, he's saying that act of injustice toward me, that is what has embittered my soul. Never mind the fact that I lost all 10 of my children or that I have a wife that doesn't want to honor the Lord and wants me to curse the Lord. Never mind that I lost all my wealth by the Sabians and Chaldeans and by lightning bolts and fire. Never mind that I've lost my health and I have boils from head to toe and worms all over. Never mind all that. None of that's embittered me. What's embittered me is you, God, because you have stripped my right. That's what Job is declaring here in this text. And I would simply say that he was playing a very dangerous game. This is the kind of, of silly thinking, goofy thinking. It's the kind of stupid speech that actually earned Job a world-class rebuke from the Almighty in chapters 38 to 41. And I don't know if you knew this or not. I, I didn't realize it, uh, but chapters 38 through 41, full, full, uh, four full chapters, one consistent perpetual rebuke from God to Job. 
That's what those chapters consist of. And I, and I would say that, that even a four-chapter rebuke from God to Job is mercy because those who, who um, bear false witness against God, those who malign his character, what do they deserve? Justice. What do they deserve? Wrath. And yet God chose not the way of wrath or justice toward Job for his insolence and rebellion here, but he chose mercy in a four-chapter rebuke. Now, God could have struck Job down for bearing false witness regarding his holy character. He could have easily done that. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira for bearing false witness for lying to the Holy Spirit? They were struck down in an instance. That could have happened to Job. It could happen to anyone who maligns God's character in this way or bears false witness or lies about him. It could happen to those who are always lying about the Holy Spirit, saying that he does all these things in, our, in these churches and these things and waving flags and craziness and drunk in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't do any of those things. Those are the, those are the concoctions of, of uh, mentally deranged men. And, 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 and the Holy Spirit is always having these things attributed to him, which is blasphemy. God could easily strike multitudes of people down as I speak because this is happening in churches all over the world through mostly the charismatic movement. God could have easily struck down Job. Job, in my opinion, deserved it, and so do I most days. But God chose the way of mercy. Verses 3 and 4, Job pledges, gives his word, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Job boldly declares that while there is breath in his lungs and while the Spirit of God is in his nostrils, that's just more breath, his lips and tongue shall not speak lies or deceit. Now, I appreciate Job's zeal here and his commitment to, 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 to his own integrity because the Christian's integrity is a very important thing because in many ways, God's reputation is on the line. If we say we're Christians and and you know we're, we're following Jesus, but live in a way that's contradictory to that, which is not hard to do. That is a that 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 maligns our integrity. It shows us to be hypocritical liars, and it doesn't reflect well on Christ. And so I, I do appreciate his pledge and vow here. And I think for the most part, he did a pretty good job in maintaining his his integrity in these sorts of things. But didn't Job just speak falsehood and deceit concerning God's alleged injustice in verse two? Aren't we seeing Job play hypocrite here and contradict himself? Yes. And, and I would simply say, in, in trying to be merciful to, toward Job, because I can't imagine his pain. I've never suffered what he suffered. Nobody in this room ever has. Uh, uh, apparently, his pain had so deeply impacted and affected him, it, it, it kind of distorted and destroyed his ability to detect his own hypocrisy. I mean, he's clearly being hypocritical here. He charges God with injustice. He's essentially lying about God, whether he realizes it or not. Then he makes a vow to never lie. That's hypocrisy. That's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction in God's word. It's a contradiction in Job's speech and in his thinking. The fact of the matter is he could not see his error here. He couldn't see the mistake he just made because he's, he's too upset. He's got friends that are attacking him. He's suffering exponentially. I can understand how he would make this mistake. I certainly have myself. And if his friends had been paying close attention to what he was saying here and, 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 and witnessed with their own ears and eyes the contradiction and hypocrisy, if they had decided to hit pause and call Job out on this, do you think that Job would have listened to them? No, he would not have because they had absolutely destroyed any ability to witness to him faithfully. These were not good friends, and, and Job would not listen to them. Now, I've said this before, and, I, and I've said it many, many times, and I just, I just think that it's a, it's a case of, of pain-induced confusion regarding Job. Believers can think some crazy things about God. They can think crazy things about others while under extreme duress. They can also say some crazy, ridiculous, stupid things about God and and then somehow vow to always tell the truth and to stand on integrity and uphold their righteousness, we can end up doing the same thing that Job did here 
while under extreme duress. We can play hypocrite. It's pretty easy to do. My friend Tony used to often say, you really, Christians are really like, uh, you know, like a tube of toothpaste. Um, really don't know what's in them until they get squeezed. And then it's what comes out, and that's what reveals what's truly in them. When they're squeezed, do they act in righteousness and, and maintain holy and righteous speech, or do they spout off ridiculous, stupid things? And that's clearly what's happening here. But I do not believe that it was Job's desire and goal to misrepresent God. He, he wasn't trying to, if he blasphemed, he wasn't trying to blaspheme. If he's hypocritical here, he wasn't trying to be a hypocrite. He certainly wasn't aiming for that. He's confused. He's hurting. He's bewildered. He's very, very upset at this point now because this is like the end of the speeches of the three friends. He's very upset with them because after all of those speeches that they, that they spoke in front of him, one after one, day after day, speech after speech, they failed and failed and failed to comfort him. All they did was make his situation worse. So he's very tweaked. He's very upset. He's very hurting. I don't think at all that, that, that Job was, was in, you know, intentionally trying to malign God or tarnish God's person and character. He wasn't trying to do that. Remember, Job has a high view of God. Right? We saw that in Job 26, 5 to 14, where he unleashes all of these awesome declarations uh, that, that are pointing out and, and defining and describing God's sovereign majesty. He was trying to outdo the, the simple things that Bildad had said back in 25, and then he goes into his own list, and it's incredible, and it reveals that he had a high view of God. What he was doing here is not trying to, to blaspheme, not trying to malign God's character, not trying to I don't think he was literally trying to charge God with injustice, although he felt like injustice had happened. What he was trying to do is make a point to his friends. They were charging him with hiding sin. They were charging him with refusing to repent. And what Job is essentially saying here in these first few verses, this is what he's trying to say. God may have removed my right to plead my case before his throne, but I will still plead it before you. I give you my word, I have not and will not speak falsehood and deceit as long as I have breath in my nostrils and lungs. This is what Job is trying to say. And I tell you what, if he had said it like I said it on his behalf here, it would have been a perfect statement. Not that my statements are perfect, but that's what he was trying to say. If he had said it like this, or maybe left out the part of God removing his, his, his right to a fair trial. If he had just said it like I said it here, but let, maybe left that part out, charging God with injustice, it had been a perfect statement. It had been a perfect rebuke. It would have been a perfect correction. But instead, in the midst of all that pain and suffering and confusion and perplexity, he lobs a missile at God. You've taken away my right, and that's why I'm embittered. That's where his mistake lies. But I think it's understandable why he would speak these things. It may not be acceptable, but it's understandable. Verses 5 and 6, he continues, Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. In verse 5 here, Job tells his friends that he will never admit to them that they are right. Because if he were to say, okay, you're right, I've been hiding sin and I need to repent. If he were to confess that, if he were to agree with what they're saying, then he would be confessing sins that he did not commit. We're not supposed to confess sins that we did not commit. And I'll tell you what, who's good at twisting us up in this, and that's the devil. The devil will sometimes impress upon us guilt over something that we did not do. And then here we are confessing sins that we did not commit to God. And it could be that he's trying to impress upon us the sins of old that have already been confessed or the sins of others. I have literally asked God uh, for, um, for forgiveness and confessed sins that have been committed against me when it's that perpetrator's responsibility to do that, not mine. But this is something that the devil wants us to do, to live in guilt and to live in shame and to confess sins that we didn't even commit. Now, we should absolutely commit sins that we did commit, but not sins that we did not. And Job is, is simply saying that, look, I have Christian integrity. I have not 
sinned in the way you guys are saying. I'm not hiding sin. And if I agree with you, then I am destroying my integrity. I am maligning, further maligning the character of God. This is not going to be beneficial at all. This is what he's telling his friends. And he gives his word and vows to keep his integrity intact till the day he dies. I will never, essentially what he's saying is, I will never say that you're right about me because you're not. Till the day I die, you are wrong and I am not going to agree with you. And then in verse 6a, Job vows to hold fast to his righteousness. You know, Job believed he had a righteous standing before God, be, essentially because God is the one who makes people righteous, but secondly, because he had lived a righteous life. And the only thing that I would say in response to his statement here is that, that no matter what is going on in our lives, we are never standing on our own righteousness. We cannot utter what Job is uttering here. We cannot say what he's saying. We might be in the right and we can defend our rightness. That's fine. But we as Christians do not stand on our righteousness because we do not have righteousness. We stand on the righteousness of Christ. We stand on the righteousness of Christ. And then in verse 6b, Job declares that his heart does not find any fault with the way he has been living his life. In other words, his conscience was clear, right? When I, when I search my conscience and my heart, I, I don't find the errors and sins that, that you three are trying to condemn me on. His conscience was clear. Steve Lawson wrote, in this bold assertion, Job claimed that he had lived in a God-honoring way, and he would continue to do so all his days. This is what Job is essentially saying. I can't agree with you. I've lived rightly to the best of my ability. I haven't done what you're saying. And we know that this is affirmed in chapter 1, Verse 1, he was an upright, blameless, righteous man who turned away from evil. So these things were true. He could defend um, this about himself. He could. But I think that we need to draw a distinction. We stand on the righteousness of Christ, not our own. Now let's move to the second W. This is Job's wish. It's what he wanted. It's what he wished for. Job wishes that God would unleash his judgment and wrath on his enemies. Now we've got to ask the question here, who are his enemies who is he referring to? Uh, was, was he referring to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar? Probably. The, the friends who had traveled 100 miles to come help him and encourage him and show him compassion and show him mercy and empathize with him actually ended up being adversaries against him. We've said it a million times with friends like those guys, who needs enemies, right? Who needs enemies? So I think that he was referring to them Undoubtedly, he was referring to them, but I think it's more. He's probably referring more so to the townspeople of Uz. When his life was blown apart and he lost everything, the Uzites, they laughed at him, Job 30, verse 1. They abhorred him, Job 30, verse 10a. They spit in disgust at the very sight of him, Job chapter 30, verse 10b. And, 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 and in a really twisted, sad, kind of demonic way, not only did they do these things toward poor Job, but they did what they could to further his calamity and pain. Not only did his friends fail to comfort him, but the whole town failed to comfort him. His friends turned against him. The whole town turned against him. He literally uh, talks about how the townspeople tried to further his pain and suffering in Job chapter 30, verse 13. And uh, what, what does he do here? Let's see. Job wishes for his enemies to become like the wicked, right? That's what he wants. And, and he literally states this in verse 7. He says, Let my enemy, these friends and the Uzites, and anyone who opposes me or stands up to me or oppresses me, let my enemy be as the wicked, and let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. Now to me, right off the bat, this seems like a bit of a strange wish. Why would you want your enemies or those who are oppressing you, why would you want them to be like the wicked? That just seems like a, a weird thing to me. And I'll tell you why. It's because Job knows what God does to the wicked. Right? He understands the wicked's demise at the hands of a wrathful, furious God. He has artfully described God's judgment against the wicked in previous speeches. And so have his friends. To wish for his enemies to become like the wicked, 
I think, in my opinion, it's the harshest possible wish because Job knows that God will absolutely destroy the wicked for their transgressions, for their treachery, for their cosmic treason if they refuse to repent. So, so to wish for his enemies to be treated by God as the wicked, I mean, that's hardcore. That's hardcore, man. He, he wants his enemies to be treated as the wicked and destroyed by God. That's essentially what he's wishing for. Spurgeon once said, God rebukes before he destroys, but once he comes to blows with the wicked, he does not cease until he has dashed them in pieces so small their very name is forgotten. What a terrifying, truthful statement. Now in verses 8 to 10, Job begins to reason out his, his terrifying wish because to wish for your enemies to be treated by God as the wicked, that, that's a terrifying wish. And what he does is he makes four brief statements concerning the wicked before unpacking a more in-depth analysis in verses 13 to 23. Uh, these statements that we're going to look at here, these four quick, simple statements, they describe the hopeless abandonment the wicked experience in the depths of Sheol far away from God's grace. Let's analyze each one. Statement one, we see it in verse 8. For what, for what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? when God takes away his life. You know, you can have hope in life. Even, even as unbelievers, they have some sense of, of hope in life. They, they, they have a hope in their bank accounts, a hope in their families, a hope in their marriages, a, a, a hope in good weather. They, they have hope that's based on a lot of temporal things and all that. And so the idea here is that the wicked man can have some level of hope in life but, and Job describes the wicked man as the godless man, but what happens to the godless or wicked man's hope when God cuts him off, when God snuffs out his life and thrusts him down into Sheol to await judgment? Where does his hope go then? Will he have hope? No, there's no hope at that point. When, when God takes away a person's, a wicked person's life, any, any chance of hope is ended because they are now facing a type of judgment and going through a type of judgment, going into a type of punishment only to await a harsher judgment and punishment later on at the return of Christ. Statement number two, we see this in verse nine. Will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? The answer is no. God does not hear the cry of the wicked or of the godless man once God has snuffed out his life and thrust him into Sheol. There is the weeping and gnashing of teeth in this, in Sheol, in Hades, in hell, and, and there is undoubtedly moaning and, and, and crying out in all these things. In fact, we see a, a crying out in, in uh, Luke chapter 16 where Jesus describes Dives, who's down in Sheol being punished, and he's crying out for his thirst to be quenched by, if he can get it, even a drop of water, and he's denied, and so he cries and cries. Does Christ reply in Luke 16 and respond to his cry and meet his need? Of course not. The man is in judgment. God doesn't listen to the cries of distress of those whom he's judged and put into um, everlasting punishment. He, he does not listen to their cries, although they cry and they weep bitterly. Job is right. And then statement three, we see this in verse 10a. Will the godless, wicked man who's been cut off by God and thrown into shield, will he take delight in the Almighty? Of course not. You know, the, the wicked curse God during life, and I believe they continue to curse God when they're in suffering. It's like now they're blaming God for their suffering when, in fact, it's their own fault. They're the ones that didn't repent. They're the ones that didn't trust in Christ. They're the ones that didn't live for God and live a righteous life. They're not going to take delight in the Almighty once God's cut them off. They didn't take delight in the Almighty when they were above ground. You think they're going to do it when they're below ground? Of course not. Job is correct. Statement 4, verse 10b. Will the godless, wicked man who's been cut off and cast into shield, will he call upon God at all times? No, no, he won't call upon God. In fact, if he says anything toward God at all while he's in that suffering, it's just more blasphemies or maybe empty requests for, for some sort of... Um, deliverance or uh, relief like we see in Luke 16, but he's not going to call upon God at all times. God is, is not his God, and he doesn't have God's ear. He doesn't have God's attention for, for mercy and grace. That has been cut off. Although God is there with the wicked, 
exercising his judgment and wrath and punishment, but he's not there to take calls. But they don't call on him anyways. They've been cut off. Now, in the last two lines under the same heading, Job's wish, the battered patriarch Job himself, he expresses another wish he has, but this time he can fulfill it himself. He has the power to fulfill or make come true this wish that he has here. And what it is is that he wishes to teach his friends about the hand of the Almighty concerning the wicked. Job may not be able to um, wish into existence that his friends would be treated like uh, the wicked, but he has the ability to to wish to teach his friends and then execute that wish. Uh, Verses 11 to 12, Job pledges and vows and gives his word and his wish, I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty? I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourself. Why then have you become altogether vain? Now, I believe Job was speaking directly to Eliphaz at this point here because Eliphaz was the oldest, most teacher-like of the three friends. And and he kind of pledged and vowed and, and wished to teach Job, all about God and all about God's judgment and all about the wicked. He, 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 he had pledged and wished to do that and even attempted to do that. He even at one point told Job to seek God in the midst of all his suffering. And he said that, why, why would I want you to seek God? Because I know God so well, he could deliver you from six troubles and so on. Job chapter 5, verse 8 and verse 19. And what we're seeing here is that the tables were now reversed or turned. Job was vowing to instruct Eliphaz and the others about God and the wicked. He is saying, you have vowed and wished to teach me. It is now my turn to teach you. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 12, Job unloads, I would say, some major sarcasm on his friends. That's a sarcastic statement in verse 12. It was as if he had said, you know, your rhetoric and and vain attempts to teach me about God and the wicked have prompted me to teach you. You've inspired me through your vanity and vain attempts to teach me. Your attempts have inspired me to teach you is what he's saying. And then he's also saying here in verse 12, you should be experts regarding these truths that I'm going to proclaim to you because you have witnessed them with your own eyes. But I must restate them for your own benefit since you seem so ignorant and out of touch. This is what he's saying in verse 12. So you can see the sarcasm. Now let's move to the third and final W. This is Job's warning. We see this in verses 13 to 23. Job warns his friends about God's judgment against the wicked and against wicked oppressors, those who mistreat and persecute the righteous, Christians. He states this objective in verse 13 before launching into his list of devastating judgments. Verse 13, he says, This, I'm going to teach you, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. And then in verses 14 to 23, Job lists eight devastating judgments against wicked oppressors. <coughs> Pardon me, I need to get a drink here. All right, let's begin with the first devastating judgment against wicked oppressors. Devastating judgment number one. We see this in verse 14a. If his children, speaking of the wicked, if his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. Job declares that the wicked uh, can literally suffer the loss of their children, often by the sword. Now, this devastating judgment is also echoed in Psalm 21, verse 10, where it says, You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. So, Job is essentially declaring that that the wicked, the godless, they could have an entire brood of children. They could have a a, a quiver full of children, full of arrows. But God has given those children to them just to crush them emotionally and to destroy them emotionally and to destroy them in totality, in a sense, by destroying the children, by taking away the children. That God ordains that they would have children just to take the children away in judgment. That's what Job is saying. That is a terrifying judgment, that the wicked would have kids for the purpose of the destruction of the kids and sometimes by the sword. Is this true? Yeah, it's true. It can happen. But it's, it's just scary to think. Devastating judgment number two, verse 14b, and speaking of the wicked, and his descendants have not, have not enough bread, is what he says. 
In some cases, God's judgment against the wicked will be manifested in, quote-unquote, not enough bread. What does that mean? What does not enough bread refer to? It refers to famine. Now, this is, so, so, so sometimes in judgment against the wicked, God will take away the children of the wicked, even if they have a bunch of children. They're just multiplied for the sword. Sometimes God will, instead of that or in combination with that, He will unleash a famine on the wicked. This is exactly what he did on wicked Israel for the sins of King Saul, what, for putting the Gibeonites to to the sword, for killing the Gibeonites who were not supposed to be killed by him. God unleashes a three-year famine on the nation of Israel for Saul's wicked deed, for Israel's uh, cooperation in that. Uh, 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. So the second devastating judgment deals with famine. Devastating judgment 3. We see it in verse 15. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Job declares that the wicked who survive the judgment of famine or maybe the loss of their children or whatever, they are often destroyed by the judgment of pestilence. Pestilence is a fatal epidemic disease. Think of the bubonic plague. Think of the Spanish flu. I don't know if you know this or not because everyone's talking about COVID as a as a, a, a pestilence, and it is a type of pestilence, I would say, but they're talking about it in, in, in they're using pandemic, you know, Spanish flu language when describing it, and it falls so short of the Spanish flu. The Spanish flu infected 500 million people across the world and killed 10%. How much is 10% of 500 million? 50 million. That, my friends, is a pandemic. That, my friends, is a pestilence. Now, The judgment of pestilence can be so far-reaching and pervasive that entire communities or people groups are literally destroyed, thus leaving no widows to weep. That's what Job means there. Why are there no widows left over when a pestilence flies through or, or moves through the land and kills everyone? Why are there no widows left to weep? Because the widows themselves have been killed along with it. Now, God unleashed a deadly Uh, He unleashed the deadly judgment of pestilence on wicked Israel for her wicked pride and self-reliance. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 to 17. Devastating judgment number 4. We see this in verses 16 to 17. Though he heap up silver like dust and pile up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. Job declares that God will judge and remove the wicked's wealth and and remove their possessions and then give their wealth and possessions to the righteous. This devastating judgment is echoed in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. It says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You get the idea that wicked sinners outside of Christ who are living their life and amassing wealth Job is saying that those, the wicked who do that, their wealth is just stored up to be given over to the righteous. Now, this devastating judgment is also echoed in Matthew 5, 5, the Beatitudes. Jesus himself said, blessed are the meek. The meek are also the righteous. Those who are in Christ, he says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are righteous in a sense, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, what does it mean to inherit the earth? Everything in the earth literally will become the possession of the righteous. Everything. Soros' wealth, it becomes the righteous' wealth. All of these things transpire. There's a huge wealth transfer from the wicked as they're judged and destroyed. Their wealth goes to the righteous at the return of Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what Christ is saying. That is essentially what Job is saying. So that's devastating judgment for the silver, the gold, the wealth, the possessions, the, the clothing, it's all amassed by the wicked, but it will be taken from them and given to the righteous. I, I, I like that promise, even though it's a, a, a scary promise and a devastating judgment, but you know, those of us who are, um, I don't know, living check to check or what have you, it's not that we're you know, the worst stewards in the world, but you know, our lot in life and God's plan for us is not to have a whole lot of money, and, the, and, he, and there's grace and mercy in that. That's a protection uh, toward us, but it's nice to know that uh, at some point in the future that uh, we will have a lot of possessions, and it'll be our adversaries and enemies' possessions that we take possession of. 
And we also need to realize that we are exponentially rich right now. We are spiritually rich. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14 speaks of the believer's inheritance and what we possess now. So there is a massive transfer of wealth coming to the righteous. The poorest saint is richer than any wicked person spiritually, but will be ri richer than all wicked people, even physically, in the kingdom of Christ. Devastating judgment number five. We see this in verse 18. Speaking of the wicked, he builds his house like a moth's, like a booth that a watchman makes. Uh, Job declares that God will easily destroy the abode of the wicked because it is weak and feeble like a moth's cocoon or weak and feeble like a watchman's booth. In other words, God in his judgment, this fifth judgment, can come and just destroy the abode, destroy the property, destroy the house, destroy the castle of the wicked. What is a watchman's booth? It was a flimsy temporary shelter that was erected near a vineyard. It was kind of like a little box or shanty. The watchman would sit in his booth all night long and watch for destructive animals like foxes or other creatures that could destroy a vineyard. And he would also sit there in his little temporary booth and watch for human pilferers. Now, Jesus echoed this devastating judgment in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, where he juxtaposed the home of the righteous with the home of the wicked. The home of the righteous, that's the wise, is built upon the word of God. And when the storms of life come, it clings to its solid foundation and remains secure. But the, the, the home of the wicked, the unwise, is, is dashed to pieces because they, when the storms come, it's destroyed because they refuse to build upon the word. They, they refuse to act in wisdom. And so Jesus kind of illustrates this judgment. The, the home of the righteous will stand because he's a righteous person. He's a wise person. He's built his life on the gospel. But the home of the wicked, it will be dashed to pieces in judgment. It will be destroyed when storms come or when the storm of God's wrath comes because he did not build on wisdom and on the gospel. Devastating judgment number six. We're getting close to the end. Verse 19. Uh, the wicked, he goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Job declares that when the wicked go to bed, God can come like a thief in the night and rob them of their riches. When they open their eyes in the morning, they realize they are now flat broke. The big point here being that God will often bring the wicked to financial ruin in a flash, in a blink. Uh, in, 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 it would be like maybe even um, like you have a lot of stocks and wealth on Tuesday and then the stock market crashes on Tuesday night or on Wednesday morning and literally overnight or in one day, all of your wealth has been snatched up. It's all gone. That's what he's talking about here. God will judge the wicked by taking away that which they hold dearest to themselves in an instant. And it's usually the wealth and possessions, and stock market, what have you. Devastating judgment number seven, we see this in verse 20. Terrors overtake him like a flood, and the night a whirlwind carries him off. Job declares that God can unleash the judgment of an unstable, anxious mind on the wicked. He's not talking about natural disasters here in verse 20. He's talking about mental stability. Now, the, the wicked, they often become terrified at the thought of losing what they have, especially their lives and the lives of their children or their wealth or what have you, any loved one. And the night becomes the most, and that's a form of judgment against them, is that terror over those things and that anxiety. And the night, what, for them, it becomes the most difficult time because that is when their minds run and run and run and consider all things and worry and are flooded with anxiousness or stupid songs they can't get out of their heads. That happens to me, and I'm not supposed to be a wicked person. I'm a righteous person because I'm in Christ. But what happens is the wicked man who's struck with this judgment, he can lie awake all night worrying about being overtaken by calamity, worrying about whirlwinds, worrying about tornadoes, worrying about earthquakes, worrying about COVID, right? Wearing a mask in his car when he's by himself. Um, and the word whirlwind here is very interesting. It's sometimes associated with destructive judgment in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 27 says, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, and then again in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25, it says, When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established 
forever. Now those two texts kind of refer to natural disasters and tornadoes coming in and destroying just about everything. But this devastating judgment, number seven here, it does refer to mental instability, that, that in judgment God could strike the wicked person with anxiety, with anxiousness, with, with disorders, with schizophrenia, with um, bipolarism, these things. And I'm not suggesting that everyone who has those disorders is being hit by God's judgment. I'm simply saying that God can strike the wicked with such judgment and disorders and, and that they have literally no peace. No matter what they have, they might have great kids, they might still have great kids and great wealth and great homes, but they have no mental stability and no joy and no hope and they're constantly struck with anxiety and worry. This happens. God can do this to the wicked. And then devastating judgment eight. This is the last one. We see it in verses 21 to 23. The east wind lifts up the wicked and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. Job declares that God can unleash the judgment of natural disasters on the wicked. The east wind is a Scirocco, and it's not a Volkswagen Scirocco. Those things were terrible. I owned one. The tire flew off on 7th Street, and I was stuck out there. Um, I was on the 7th Street Bridge when my wheel literally flew off the car. And the corner of the car hit the ground, and it was stuck in the middle of the road. It was terrible. That was my experience with a Volkswagen Scirocco. But we're not talking about a Volkswagen Scirocco. We're talking about the east wind. We're talking about a hot, fast-moving desert wind, uh, and, and they're usually indigenous to, or they are indigenous to places like Israel and Southern California. They call them the Santa Ana winds down south. And there are other regions where these things are, are very, um, uh, very much present. A Scirocco sometimes has the power and speed to mercilessly hurl the wicked, to just fling people, kind of like hurricane winds or a tornado. It can just fling people headlong into flight. And when a, a Scirocco uh, blows against the abode of the wicked or against the wicked's home, it can sound like clapping hands and, and it can sound like a hissing serpent, you know, it can sound like a hissing serpent as pressure collects on surfaces and then squeezes through cracks and crevices. Now, so, so I think Job is talking about the judgment of natural disasters, and particularly the Scirocco or um, whirlwind, so to speak. Now, Christopher Ashe suggests something completely different, which I think is, is, is far more terrifying. He thinks that Job is not referring to a literal Scirocco or the east winds, but to something else, a tormenting demon. He wrote, the wicked man will be mocked and laughed at by the demonic agent of God's judgment. The east wind seems like a vivid personification of a destructive demon as it throws itself at him with no pity and claps its hands at him and hisses at him like a deadly serpent. So that's what Christopher Ash thinks that, that Job is referring to here. He's talking about a demonic agent coming in judgment sent by God to, to totally harass and terrify the wicked. That is terrifying to think that God could do that. So that is Job's list of eight devastating judgments. Are they not devastating? They are. The loss of children, the loss of wealth, the loss of your home, the loss of your possessions, the loss of, in some ways, your mental faculties or sanity, the, uh, and, and to be consistently tormented by a demon or by natural disaster and, and, and the fear that comes with that. These are devastating judgments. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did you notice the irony in Job's list? Did anyone pick up on the irony here? Seven of the devastating judgments he just described happened to him. Seven of them. Job's children were multiplied and then ten of them were killed. Job chapter 1 verses 18 to 19. Job had no remaining descendants to suffer from famine, but he was suffering from famine. He lost his appetite, and food made him want to vomit. Job chapter 6, verse 7. That's a type of famine that he was experiencing. Job had no remaining survivors to suffer from pestilence, but he was suffering from pestilence, wasn't he? He had painful sores from head to toe and worms all over his flesh. Job chapter 2, verse 7, and chapter 7, verse 5. Job had heaped up silver like dust and, and, and clothing, fine clothing like clay, 
and his wealth was very, very vast. He was what? The, the, the most powerful, wealthy person of the East? But what happened? It was taken away by the Chaldeans and the Sabians. Job chapter 1, verse 3, and Job chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. Job had gone to bed rich one night, but woke up the next day and became a pauper. Right? He lost it all. Job chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. Job was overtaken by terror and anxiety, right? He, he was flooded with mental instability and problems. He lost his, his joy. He lost his hope. He lost his peace, especially at night. The man had insomnia. He couldn't sleep because of his terrifying anxiety. Job chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Job's oldest son's home was destroyed by a powerful east wind, a deadly Shirako. Job chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. And Job was being tormented day after day by the prince of demons, Satan. Remember, this is Satan who's unleashing all of this calamity and suffering on Job. So Christopher Ashe could be right in his commentary that, that, that the wicked could suffer the torments of a demon. Jesus himself was suffering, or not Jesus himself, he was too in a sense when he was tempted by, by Satan in the wilderness, but Job himself was suffering the torments of the prince of demons, Satan. Uh, Job chapter 1 verse 12, Job chapter 2 verse 7, and not only was he suffering torment at the hands of a a, a, a a, a demon here, but he was suffering at the hands of three cruel friends. You go back and look at their speeches and see how cruel their speeches were. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 15, chapter 18, chapter 20, chapter 22, chapter 25. Man, Job, Job is speaking from experience, but he's not a wicked man. He's a righteous man. What he's essentially telling his friends, many things, but one thing that he's telling his friends is that it is entirely possible for a righteous man to suffer the same things that the wicked suffer. Now, the difference between the righteous and the wicked, when these things befall the wicked, is the judgment of God. When they befall the righteous, it could be satanic attack and all these things at the discretion of God. But it's not the judgment of God. It's not the judgment of God. Now, we need to remember that, that Job thought God had somehow mistaken him for a wicked person. And that's why he was experiencing all these you know, terrible, devastating judgments. This is why he was so perplexed and continued to claim his innocence. This is why he demanded a hearing before God. He wanted to go before God and clear his name and say, God, why are you misjudging me? This is why he demanded justice in this text. I want to be cleared of the accusations against me, and I want this judgment to end, and I want the judgment to go on my, my wicked enemies. Now, we know that, that Job was not experiencing judgment at the hand of God. Chapters 1 and 2 reveal that Job was a righteous man. He wasn't a wicked man. And they reveal that God had a purpose for his suffering, and that purpose was not judgment. There's a sanctifying component to it for Job. And there's also a vindicating component for God because Satan thinks that God's people worship him only because of what God gives them. And God is using Job to prove Satan wrong. So there is a divine purpose behind the suffering. And in the ultimate sense, as bad as it was, it was for Job's good and to clear God's righteous, perfect name. But in any case, Job's warnings concerning the wicked, concerning wicked oppressors, should be taken seriously. He is, in a sense, telling his friends this. If you continue to oppress a righteous man, me, you will eventually reap what you sow. God may respond to your wickedness by unleashing the same devastating judgments on you. You could lose your children. You could suffer famine and pestilence. You could lose your wealth, mental stability, and homes to a Scirocco. You could be tormented day after day by a cruel demon or by natural disasters or by insensitive, self-righteous friends. This is essentially the meaning of this chapter. Job is saying, look, I'm a righteous man and things came upon me. You're acting wickedly. How much more could they come upon you? That's what he's saying. 
We know that the wicked can and will suffer devastating judgments. And we know that the only way of escape is to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone can save and deliver us from God's wrath and judgment. It's His perfect work that, that redeems and saves and delivers sinners under the wrath of God, from the wrath of God, and from these devastating judgments. But we need to remember that salvation in Christ does not guarantee no suffering in life. This is one of the, the, the primary lessons in the book of Job. Those who believe, the righteous, they can and will suffer. We need to remember this. But we also need to know that the suffering believer's experience is not the result of divine judgment. You know, when, when, when terrible things befall us, if we, if we lose a child or lose our health or lose our wealth or, or lose, lose something else, we need to know and understand that that is not God's aggression and wrath and divine judgment against us. They may be difficult circumstances, but they, not, they are not an expression of God's wrath toward us. And, and Job was wrong to, to, to think that God had made a mistake with him and was now putting judgment on him when, it, when the, you know, the, the, the bullseye should have been on somebody else, maybe on his friends. Job, in his confusion and suffering, forgot here in this moment that God is an excellent marksman, the ultimate sniper, that when he sets his, when he sets his sights and, and, and zooms in on the target, that he does not miss and hit, hit this righteous person over here, that God is precise. And we fi- when he fires the projectile of his, his wrath, at the wicked, it hits its target every time and never creates any sort of collateral damage in the righteous. <coughs> he had forgotten that God is a precise expert marksman. Job had forgotten that God does not treat his wicked or his children like the wicked. Again, Job thinks this, right? Like, like, like I'm a righteous person, I belong to God, but somehow God is treating me like the wicked. Well, if he's going to treat me like the wicked, I want him to treat these evil friends like the wicked. Job was wrong about these things. This is stinking thinking. This is the wrong way to think. Distorted thinking, a bad theology. We do need to understand as well, though, that God will discipline his children when necessary, which is an expression of his love. He chastises those whom he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. When God unleashes judgment on the wicked, it is the result of his wrath, Ezekiel 7, 8. When God allows things or ordains difficult things for us, uh, difficult seasons, seasons of suffering and these sorts of things, it is for our good. It is not for, for our spiritual destruction. And we know also that suffering can come in all shapes and sizes. And, and I think sometimes, if we're going to be honest, it can look and feel like divine judgment. Wasn't this the case with poor Job? But we mustn't repeat Job's error and allow the pain to cloud our understanding and distort our view of God. We need to know, no matter what we go through, as God's children, we need to know this. Remember this. When you go through difficulty as God's child, you're in Christ by grace through faith. When this happens, you are not being judged by God. God is not pouring out His wrath on you. You need to remember, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 there is no condemnation, zero. Condemnation brings wrath. If there is no condemnation in you because you're in Christ, that means no wrath for you no matter what. Under no circumstances will you experience or suffer the wrath of God because God has not condemned you. He condemned Jesus on a cross so that he would not condemn you. Remember this, beloved. Remember this as well, that, that God has a good purpose for our suffering. In all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28. You know, when you go through terrible things, difficult things, ugly things, it may not seem good or that God will work good through it, but He will. He has promised to. If God has ordained a season of suffering for us or even a life of suffering, because this happens, we need to remember that we will never be abandoned by God, nor will we ever uh, be thrust into Sheol away from God's grace. 
This is the inheritance of the wicked, not the possession and inheritance of the righteous. God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Deuteronomy Hebrews 13, 5. God has promised to be with us always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. God has promised us a place in heaven. In fact, Jesus said He's preparing it for us right now. John 14, 3. And when we that are in Christ pass away, when we fall asleep and pass away, we go straight to the presence of Jesus and receive our place. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And God has promised us, those who are in Christ, His people, His children, people like Job, He has promised us a never-ending supply of His all-sufficient, all-satisfying grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, and chapter 12, verse 9. He gives us grace to soothe our pain in the midst of our suffering. He gives us grace to endure the suffering, to either endure it the rest of our life or to endure it until it ends. And He gives us grace to empower holy living in the midst of our suffering. And at all times, suffering doesn't excuse us from righteous holy living. It might make it more difficult, but it does not excuse us. He gives us grace to, to, to soothe the pain, grace to endure, grace to live holy lives. And He even invites us during times of suffering, during times of need, or really at any time, to approach the throne of grace with boldness whenever we need grace. Hebrews 4.16 And if you're like me, you need grace all the time. I need to live at the throne of grace. And isn't this what Job needed the most during his awful trial? Grace. Didn't his friends kind of kind of vow to travel 100 miles to come and give him grace? They did. And did they provide grace for Job? No, they didn't. And isn't that what we need the most during our trials? Grace? Yes, it is. We need grace. And, and, and isn't grace what our brothers and sisters, when they're going through trials, need the most? Yes, it is. We need to avoid making the same mistake as Job's friends with those who are hurting especially when it's our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We don't want to make that mistake. We don't want to repeat that mistake when, 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 when we go to them to offer comfort and mercy and grace and encouragement, when we do that and somehow we switch into this weird, pharisaical, self-righteous, condemning kind of mode. We need to avoid making that same mistake. God has graced us. We need to be sure to grace others. Don't make the mistake that Job's friends made. I really think that obviously Job's life and the way this turned out is the way that God ordained it, but I can't help but think hypothetically that if his friends had come and done what they said they would do, Job's suffering would have kept going and all that, but they could have and would have, if they had given him grace, eased his suffering just a little bit, just a little bit. Maybe a lot, but they failed to do that. May we not make the same mistake. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and this awesome text. Job 27 is incredible. We thank you that you have reminded us of the devastating judgments that, that come against the wicked, whether it be the abandonment in Sheol or the loss of their children and all these things. These are devastating judgments. They are true they can happen. They will eventually happen at some point. And I pray that if there be any wicked people in this congregation, those who are not yet in Christ, that they would run to Calvary right now and put their faith in Jesus and repent and turn away from their unbelief and love of sin. I pray that that would happen. And for the rest of us who are already in Christ, we thank you for your mercy and grace because that's what that is. We couldn't come to Him on our own. It's only by Your grace and mercy and the power of the Spirit that we know Jesus at all. We thank You for that. We thank You that You have delivered us from these judgments, that You put these judgments ultimately on Christ at the cross so that You would not have to put them on us or those who have faith. 
Thank you for delivering us from these devastating judgments. And Father, just now I'm reminded again of, of what we ought to be toward those who are hurting, whether they believe, be believers or unbelievers, especially the brethren, believers, that we are to be gracious toward them. Yes, we need to speak the truth in love, but we need to be gracious toward them. We need to offer and impart your grace to them. They may not receive it or want anything to do with it, but we have done our job when we have spoken and offered your grace that can only be found in Christ. We have done our job when we have spoken about your mercy and deliverance that can only be found in Christ. May we this week go out and try to help someone who's hurting. You've given us grace. May we give that grace to others. We thank you and pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.